I am Charlotte Kassaragi, and in partnership with the House of Chanel, I present to you the Les Rencontres podcast. As part of the Rendezvous Littéraire at Rue Cambon, this podcast spotlights the birth of a female writer. You can listen to the various episodes and their authors on your preferred streaming platforms. Happy Saturday. It's December 24th, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And I have a special gift from me today, this Christmas Eve morning. I have Ashley Baker back in New York City from London with me in the same time zone. So it's an early Christmas present and I'll take it. Ashley, welcome home and welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. I was going to start singing I'll Be Home for Christmas, but I'll spare you my voice on this beautiful holiday morning. Nowhere I'd rather spend it, Michael, than here with you and our listeners talking all about the gobsmackingly good new issue of Airmail. It's a great issue. And we, on this Christmas weekend, we know you're pressed for time. So we're just going to get right into it. We have a few gifts for you. First, James Walcott will stop by to reminisce about the wonderful pleasures he discovered as a young man in 1980s New York when he spent the holiday alone in an empty and beautiful city. Then, speaking of life's small pleasures, Malika Brown joins us from London to discuss the clink, London's hottest new restaurant that is, well, a little rough around the edges, but worth going to. Let's get this done. This is the day of the year, Mike, where I'm going to watch A Christmas Story, I'm going to watch Home Alone, and I'm going to watch National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, and I have no shame about any of that. I'm going to watch... My usual, which is, it's a wonderful life, and I have no shame about that either, so... I'm probably going to be drinking way too much mulled wine. This is a tradition in the UK that these guys have really got me onto. Like starting like November 15th, everywhere you go, you're offered a cup of mulled wine and I have been partaking and it is delicious. So I'm bringing that to my house this holiday season for sure. All right. Well, grab a glass of mulled wine, settle in because as I said, we have a delightful show. Ashley, where would you like to begin? Let's talk about Mr. James Walcott. Let's bring Jim on to tell us about a solo Christmas in New York City. Jim is an incredible author of many things and a writer at large for Airmail probably the best cultural critic of his generation. I think we can say that or best cultural critic alive, maybe who has ever lived. And we are fortunate to have him in the airmail universe and especially lucky to have him on the show. Also, he's got the most lovely wife in all of America. Love to Laura Jacobs, our dear colleague and our arts Intel editor. Merry Christmas to all and welcome Jim. Okay, Jim, first of all, tell us about what your Christmas day in New York City is like now and what it used to be like when you were living on St. Mark's Place. How have things changed for you? Well, I'm married now to the Arts Intel editor, and it's just the two of us and the cat. We always have a tree. And so there's the usual things, but we don't have a Victorian brood of children gathering around and taking their sleds out later in the day. There's none of that. Nearly everybody's Christmas is over by noon. On the few times I would go back to my native Maryland on Christmas, it was by noon, it was all over. And then it was like, what's there to watch? So that's what it was like then when I was single, living either on St. Mark's Place or my next apartment was on 12th Street and 2nd Avenue. It was just basically me and, again, a cat. So took it from there. I never felt like this terrible 
stab of loneliness like Christmas morning. I'm all alone. I'm not sentimental that way. Well, in fact, you talk about how spending Christmas alone can be one of the great pleasures in life, especially in a city like New York. How does the city reveal itself uniquely to people who are spending this moment of the year when everyone else is in such a frenzy, those who are spending it by themselves? Well, people used to say, oh, they would feel sorry for themselves spending the holidays alone. I couldn't get trapped. I always felt like, well, that's a great opportunity to take advantage of the city. There's absolutely no reason to mope. And also, New York doesn't care if you're moping. So your moping is wasted. But the city becomes very crowded in certain tourist areas. But the rest of the city kind of opens up because a lot of people leave before Christmas and don't return until after New Year's. They're gone that week. So you have the advantage of like you can go to movies that are not going to be packed to the rafters. You can go to museums that, again, are not going to be packed. You can sort of explore the city as if it were yours. But I always found that great. It's not only you're exploring the city, but it kind of gives you more of your own head back because you're not competing with everybody to run around and get into the good seat or the hot restaurant or whatever. The city is more your thing. I like that. Everyone else is chasing Silent Night, and I always compare this week to Silent Week, where the city just empties out and you have that silence and you feel like, this is my city and I get it at my terms. There's a real beauty to that. And one of the notes that you have in your very poetic story this week is everyone else is chasing church on Christmas or Christmas Eve, but you found your church back then as a single guy, living on St. Mark's, in that great place, which is a movie theater, right? Your memories of that, which I love. Yeah. Oh, no. I, there were certain movies that they were big Hollywood movies. It never occurred to me to like go, oh, well, Christmas Day, I'm going to go catch the new Fossbender because I had seen enough Fossbender to know that it was going to be a story of how Cap Capitalism ground you down to nothing and left you in the curb. And I thought, well, I see that any time, really. And so there were certain big Hollywood movies. One of them was Young Frankenstein. Another was The Sting. There is something about Hollywood entertainment values really come through on Christmas. I don't think that's true anymore. I mean, I think it's very hard to know what contemporary movie you'd go to see on Christmas experience, that sort of thing, because this Christmas will have Avatar 2, but Avatar 2 is over three hours. I mean, to me, that's bring a sleeping bag and, you know, your backpack. But in that period, 70s and 80s, maybe not so much into the 90s, a big Hollywood movie was the perfect way to spend Christmas Day. Jim, we all have our own traditions of the movies that we watch every year. For me, it's Home Alone. Don't ask why. What are your favorite movies this time of year that you can't stop returning to? We tend to watch White Christmas because of Danny Kaye, largely. Although we have more problems with White Christmas because it's so white. It's such a white Christmas. You would never think that there were soldiers of color in the military. But the musical numbers, the sentiment. I'm not as big on It's a Wonderful Life. I sort of like movies where Christmas isn't the main theme, but it's sort of there in the background. And so the, I can't think of any offhand, but the ones where you just notice that there's a Christmas tree in the back. Well, and each year, of course, we get the arguments is Die Hard a Christmas movie. That's one of the ones. One that's been adopted as a Christmas movie, I can't say it's one of my favorites, is Eyes Wide Shut, because it is set at Christmas. I'll tell you a movie that I really, really like. It's a small independent movie, and it's called Christmas Again, but with a comma after again. And it's about someone who sells Christmas trees. And 
as you'll notice, after Thanksgiving, all those places seem to sprout up from the earth. All the Christmas tree salespeople and the block long row of trees. And this is about someone who sells them. And what's that like? It's a really sweet, emotional, human scale Christmas movie. You know, a good Christmas movie. I mean, I think this is a Christmas movie for me is Diner which is set back in Maryland, Jim. But I mean, you're aware because there's a moment where Kevin Bacon is in a crash, but like, that's it. But it's sort of like told over that week between Christmas and New Year's when people are, I think it gets to that sense of coming back for family and stuff. But here's an important question for you, Jim. Usually on Christmas, the only place open, and the usual thing is you have to eat Chinese food back in the day, right? Because that was the only restaurant that was open. So where was Jim Walcott eating back then? There were diners that were open 24 hours. I didn't go to the Chinese restaurant because it was mostly family. And of course, it was a Jewish tradition to go to a Chinese restaurant. It struck me that it was mostly families and groups. And if you're eating alone, well, if you're going to eat alone, a diner is the perfect place. The problem for someone now is that there are so few diners and there's so few that are open all the time. I would be at one of the East Village places like Kiev or there were a number of them that were just open all the time and the service was somewhat surly, but you knew the rules. You knew you didn't complain, ask for a little bit more unless they liked you. But that's where I would be. There was also, they opened a McDonald's at one point near the East Village. And I mean, I didn't go in, but you could sort of go in and look and say, oh, having their Christmas lunch at McDonald's. It was always rather poignant. Jim, any special plans for the holidays this year? If you know anything about Laura, you can expect you would not be surprised that she has boxes and boxes and boxes of vintage ornaments. So this becomes this aesthetic thing every year. It's sort of like the Bergdorf windows as a production. We'll be in town. Laura will probably have another nutcracker to see. There's a saying in the ballet world, another nutcracker until death. Each season, it's one of those stoic sayings in the ballet world. But other than that, now it will be here. Happy holidays to you and to Laura. And thank you again for this wonderful story. Happy holidays to you both. Michael, I kind of want to spend Christmas like Shea Wolcott one year. Sounds like those guys know how to do it up. I think they do know how to do it up. I think Jim was holding out. He's got a few secrets up his sleeve, but everyone's entitled to that. Got me thinking when I asked him, like, where would you have dinner? Which seems like a natural transition to our next guest, who is telling us about a restaurant back in your temporary hometown of London. We have Malika Brown on. It's so funny because this is going to be a controversial statement, but there's no food town quite like New York City. And I've been suffering a little bit in my pocket of West London, where it's just kind of a, there are not many restaurants aside from the River Cafe there that I find myself frequenting. But it turns out I was looking in all the wrong places. Malika is going to take us to jail, where apparently in London, jail is the one place where you can reliably get an excellent meal. So here we go. Malika is a writer based in London who covers food and travel. And we are very happy to welcome her to Morning Meeting for the very first time, hopefully not the last. Welcome, Malika. Okay, so Malik, just because you're in the clink or in prison doesn't mean that you have to suffer culinarily. And we've got Malika Brown here to tell us about one of London's best restaurants, which is a bit rough around the edges. Welcome, Malika. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. In the issue this week, you talk about a hidden spot in Brixton, which is one of the foodiest neighborhoods of all of London. Tell us a little bit about this restaurant and what makes it so unique. Well, it's one of four restaurants run by a charity called The Clink inside prisons. And prisons in Britain tend to be in neighborhoods and on the edges of towns and not in the middle of nowhere. And you rock up to the prison and you get rid of everything in your pockets and you hope for a good prison experience. It's 
entirely voluntary, of course, but you experience a rehabilitation program. You come out with a different view of prison and prisoners and with a good meal behind you and something to tell your friends about, basically. Well, first of all, a restaurant is both an art and a science. It's It has to have good food, but it also has to have a compelling atmosphere and a bit of a backstory. So how does this place stack up according to those criteria? Well, on one hand, Brixton is London's oldest prison, and it's really notorious. It imprisons people from Brixton, which adds to it too. So the fact that it's not very far from my house made it kind of attractive is not the word, but it's an interesting thing to add to the knowledge of your neighbourhood, let's say. It's also Victorian and it stands next to the oldest working windmill in London called the Brixton Windmill, which was built at the same time in 1819. So there's a kind of Victorian element stepping back in time. What I found fascinating is Strange Mix, but as you report this week, it's in the top 100 restaurants in London. It ranks above the rich restaurants, so they must be doing something right there. I think in experience culture, people are really into... Instagramming their food, don't we all know that? And I think it's become a thing to do in London and it gets rated on TripAdvisor. That's where it's ranked among the top 10%. And if you look on the comments, you'll see that people ask whether they can take their stuff with them and leave it there because they're going on to a show afterwards. So you realise it's the crowd who probably took in the London dungeon beer on. It's a ticketed experience of medieval horror. So this is the food aspect of their day in London. There's definitely that element. I think for Londoners, it's probably part of an attempt to do redemption and to sort of feel a bit better about the terrible crisis our prisons are in. The food is good. It's beautifully presented. It's quite fussy. It's not cheap. And the weirdest thing is you can't Instagram it. So it's that retro that you can't take your phone and everything gets taken off you. So you really have to be able to describe it to people and you have nothing to show for it at all which is incredibly unusual these days. Malika, in some ways, when I read your story, it reminded me of the Wes Anderson film, The French Dispatch. Have you seen that? Well, sure, sure. Is it anything at all like the restaurant in the film? Well, I have to say, when I walked into the dining room, I was hoping for sort of symmetrical lines and long sort of corridors. And the symmetry of prisons is a big attraction for the sort of, I don't want to say prison glamour, but prison, definitely there's an aesthetic to prison that is appealing to those who are not inside it. I think you might be thinking of the police commissioner's dining room, that wild party they have inside. I didn't see anything like that. And in fact, the restaurant is kind of elegant but really dull and it felt like artificial intelligence had been asked to design dining in the 90s it's kind of weird and of course there's plastic cutlery which could be quite Wes Anderson I suppose and there's no alcohol and the colors are very much not primary colors it's all gray and what's deemed to be elegant I guess you mentioned also that it started as a charity they've got as you report in your story I think now four other prison restaurants in the UK. They've won more than 60 awards. So again, it's a testament to the success they're seeing there in teaching people skills. But we were talking before we came on the show, heat shortages in London, strikes everywhere. It's a Dickensian era prison, maybe for neo-Dickensian era times. Is that part of the attraction these days? Yeah, maybe it is. Maybe we want to see things even worse than they are now. It's true that these Victorian prisons, certainly, which Brixton is one of, are not fit for modern purpose. So their cells are made for Victorian-sized men and much shorter people, and they're incredibly overcrowded. Sadly, prison is a growth economy in Britain. They're Obviously, they're state-funded here, but they 20,000 more places are being made available by the mid-decade, I think. And that feels 
hopeless, really. So going to dine at the clink is a way of feeling like you're doing your part of the redemption effort and that when they come out, at least they'll have the skills to not re-offend, which is a huge problem. If you can go and work in a kitchen and if you work at the clink, you do a nine to five job every day, Monday to Friday, and sometimes it's catering the weekends and stuff. So it's a great opportunity to go and work in clean, civilized, calm conditions, apart from what it offers on the outside as well. Well, Malika, thank you so much, not only for this wonderful story, which was such fun to read and so illuminating, but for joining us here today. It's lovely to meet you. Thank you. So my question for you, Ashley, are you going to book a table at the clink? Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, you can also buy a souvenir tea towel. What's not to love? What's not to love? All right. Well, tis the season. The holiday beckons, Michael. But before we go, do you have anything at all you could recommend? I do. Speaking of little stocking stuffers, I have a Polish film. I want to recommend it. It's called EO. You may have seen it written up a little bit here in airmail. It is directed by a man named Jerzy Skolomowski, who is 84 and might have delivered, I think, one of his most beautiful movies. One, I think, that will be a real contender for the Oscars as well. And its star, a donkey, turns in one of the season's most beautiful and heartbreaking performances. Now, the donkey plays EO, who is part of a small circus and has a doting woman who takes care of him. But when the circus goes broke, he's sold off to farmers, but he then goes in search of a happier life, which causes him to escape. And he proceeds on an adventure that takes him across Europe, from Poland to Italy, from small villages to the Alps and points in between, and includes an appearance by Isabel Huppert, of all people. It's a film that's quiet, largely devoid of dialogue, as we simply watch EO move through a human world. It's a remarkable movie filled with, I think, beautiful moments, powerful images that stick in your heart and make you think about your place, not just in the world, but most of all, how we've come disconnected from the natural world and the humanity we've lost in the process. It's a gorgeous, powerful film, something I think was perfect for watching over this holiday break. It's called EO, EO, and it's in theaters now. And you, Ashley? Okay, I blame my children for this one, but there is a new film adaptation of Matilda the Musical that is coming out on Netflix tomorrow. Merry Christmas indeed. It's excellent. It is directed by the British theater director, Matthew Warkus, who is the artistic director of The Old Vic here in London. And he is extraordinary. I mean, this is obviously based on a very well-known and highly successful stage musical of the same name. This was on Broadway for several years, written by Dennis Kelly. But the film version is everything you could want it to be and more. The music is incredible. The acting is fantastic. It stars a really talented girl named Alicia Weir, who plays Matilda Wormwood. You have Emma Thompson as the Trunchbull. I mean, Andrea Riseborough as Mrs. Wormwood. It is a really incredible all-star cast. The acting is beautiful. The costumes are extraordinary. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this. I saw it in the theater in London. My son went and saw it again, and I think I'm going to be watching it tomorrow on Netflix as well. It's just extraordinary. So it's Matilda the Musical, the film version on Netflix, effective tomorrow. Sounds fun. See, now you've got another film to add to that roster you just gave us earlier. I mean, you're basically going to be eating Christmas Eve dinner in front of the TV, but that's okay. That's the picture of Happy Holiday, Michael. All right. On that note, we wish you all a wonderful holiday break. We can't wait to see you next week on New Year's Eve. And until then, we wish you a wonderful week. Thank you so much for joining us. Michael, will you please read us out?
Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music, but most of all, thank you again for joining us.